Okay, so as I mentioned, we are beginning a new Sunday school class. Um, it will run uh, for basically June and July, um, and then uh, we'll switch gears. And um, one of the things we like to do in the summer is go through a, a book of the Bible, a biblical book. And remember, one of the goals of our teaching is to um, unfold the whole counsel of God. Um, we want to be cognizant and aware of and understanding of the entire Word of God. Um, and so that includes like the popular parts that we always are reading, um, but also the parts that are new and different or maybe just unfamiliar to us. Um, and certainly for the broader evangelical church, the entire Old Testament fits in that cat last category <laughs> of just like, what do we do with this? Um, how are we supposed to understand this? This is just um, so different and at times strange. Um, and so for um, this summer, we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus. And um, actually, because of the shortness of the time that I have this summer, we're actually just going to do the first half. And then, Lord willing, next summer, I'll do the second half. I was thinking of trying to squeeze in the whole book, and I just realized that was irresponsible. It's <laughs> just too much, too much. Um, and this will be a discussion-oriented class, so that's why I roped off the back so that we could kind of stay together up front here, hear each other. Um, so I just encourage you guys that this will be a time where we can talk about the Word together. But before we dive into the book, I want to just give us a little background, um, talk about just some key themes in the book of Genesis that are going to um, join together in um, this book of Exodus. In fact, it's kind of interesting. The, there's the book of Genesis, which the very first words are in the beginning, and then the next three books all begin with the word and. So, and these are the names. That's how um, Exodus begins. And, and uh, Leviticus is, and the Lord called to Moses. And then, again, um, we have in Numbers, again, that begins with and. And the point is that it's one unified narrative. And so let's talk for a moment about some of the key things from the book of Genesis. Remember, God's purpose for humanity, if you look at Genesis 1.26, is that God would have image bearers, human beings, who would rule on his behalf and who would fill the world. And it says, let them fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, Genesis 1.28. So the mission for humanity is... Fill the earth and rule on God's behalf. Of course, they disobey and don't do that. That's what Genesis 3 is about. And what happens there, very interesting, is that God does not immediately do away with humanity. He, he says, I'm going to have a future for you. Look at Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, the serpent... He's speaking to the serpent here, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's now this, after sin, this conflict between who? Who are the different parties, according to Genesis 3.15? The woman and the serpent, in particular the woman's seed, right? And the serpent's seed. So it's a war between 
the seeds. Um, offspring is usually how it's translated, but it's literally the word seed. It's the, the, uh, the you know, those who come from each of these lines here. Um, so there's this war between the seeds, and there's also this loss of fellowship with God. So look at the end of chapter 3, verse 23. The Lord God sent him out, at the man, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground. So he's driving the man out, right? Loss of fellowship, loss of the garden. with God. And so these are all kind of like the dramatic threads that are setting the trajectory forward in the whole Bible, really. God had an intention. We destroyed. We, we basically th we defied God's intention. And so now God isn't going to, he's not going to stop pursuing that good intention, but he's going to declare war between um, the serpent and his offspring and the woman who's going to have this seed who's going to come and crush the serpent's head. And along the way, we're going to see somehow God bringing resolution to this loss of fellowship with God. They're no longer in the garden, no longer in fellowship with the holy God. And what we realize as we read the book of Genesis is that the offspring of Abraham is going to be absolutely key for all of these things. So look with me at Genesis 17. And again, this is just really quickly setting the stage because I want to spend most of our time in the text of Genesis today. But um, God summarizes all three of the key promises to Abraham here very nicely in his words in Genesis 17, 6 through 8. He says to Abraham, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful and make you into nations and kings will come from you. How does that connect with what we just heard? How does that connect to what we've just been talking about? Fill the earth and rule. How is there going to be a full earth of good image bearers? Well, it's going to come from Abraham. Abraham is going to be made exceedingly fruitful. Okay, so if this is kind of like all humanity, their general storyline. Now, when we talk about Abraham, we have this promise of abundant seed. I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful. That's verse 6. And then he says, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. What does that have to do with what we just talked about from Genesis 1 through 3? Yeah, fellowship with God is going to be reestablished. God's going to have a, give them a covenant. And that covenant is going to be a reestablishment of fellowship with God. And then here, look at verse 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And so there's the land promise, right? So you've got the covenant relationship and this land promise. Um, God is going to give to them the land of their sojournings and um, have a place for people of God. And so as we then turn to the book of Exodus, we find the people after an initial period where we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob has his 12 boys, and um, 
They, those boys have to go down to Egypt because of lack of food in the land. Um, the end of the book of Genesis is God, through the ins- inspiring um, Jacob, saying there's going to be a future for all these sons, and, and yet it's not here yet, right? And we see um, a Joseph giving commands about his body, that when he dies, um, he wants them to bring the bones back to the promised land. So he's looking forward to this establishment of the, um, all these promises that God's going to do. He's remembering these promises that Abraham, God made to his great-great-grandfather. I think that's right. Um, Abraham, uh, or great-grandfather. Um, and he's going, to, he's going to come back. And that's where the, the plot leaves off in the book of Genesis. We have all these big promises God's made that's going to correct all that happened in the fall. But we haven't really seen those promises yet. That's what happened. That's the stage that's set now as we zoom forward about 400 years to the book of Exodus. So lots has happened, as we're about to see. Um, And um, as we begin the book of Exodus, I just want to give a very, very quick, big picture overview of the entire book. So this is kind of like spoiler moment here. (laughs) But um, I think it'll really help us as we're going to dive into chapter 1 today. Really quick, here are, here's like the, the big plot overview of the book of Genesis. And by the way, if you ever heard of the Bible Project, it's like an online thing. Um, they give like little six-minute summaries of, of the Bible, each biblical book. Outstandingly well done. Um, my one reservation is sometimes they have images of God and of Jesus, which we believe to be unlawful according to the second commandment. But um, that aside, um, they're wonderful kind of big-picture synopses of the um, of each of the biblical books. Very helpful as you're just trying to dive into a book. Um, but yeah, what happens in Genesis or Exodus 1? God sets the stage for what's going to be the big dramatic flow for the first half of the book, and really it's something that's going to occupy us this whole summer, which is Pharaoh setting himself against the people of Israel. Pharaoh's opposition. I'm just going to abbreviate Pharaoh as PH. So Pharaoh's opposition to Israel. He's afraid. We're going to learn about that in just a moment. What happens? Then God raises up Moses, who is the unwilling servant. (laughs) He's like, please send somebody else. Um, But God chooses Moses, and God uses Moses then to rescue Israel out of Egypt. And this is where we have all the plagues, right? So the ten plagues. The climactic plague being the death of the firstborn. And that's when Pharaoh finally says, get out of here, (laughs) right? And the people leave. But then Pharaoh, even then, his heart is still hard. We're going to talk a lot about this. And he chases Israel. And it looks like all is lost because Pharaoh's got all the super army with the chariots and everything. And Israel doesn't have any of that stuff. But what happens? God makes a way through the Red Sea for Israel to escape, and he causes the Red Sea to crash down on Egypt. And that is kind of like the end of the first narrative section here, the the resolution of all Pharaoh's opposition. Um, And we're going to see this has a lot to do with this, the war between the seas. We'll see that in a moment. Um, But 
God de defeats Pharaoh decisively, and they emerge on the other side. You're like, awesome, okay, plot re resolved, right? Um, and then you're like, well, wait, there's still, you know, 24 more chapters in this book. So, like, what's, that, what's all this about? Well, 16 through 18, we start to realize um, problem not completely resolved. There's a lot of sin in the wilderness on the way to Sinai. A lot of grumbling and a lot of complaining makes us start to wonder if maybe Pharaoh's not the only one with hard hearts. And so we see the sin of Israel in the wilderness. It's going to be a big theme later, later books, too. Then we have the arrival at Sinai. And the rest of the book is at Sinai. And this is where Moses goes up and receives the law. And so in 20 through 24, we have the covenant inaugurated. And as we're tracking along, we're like, hey, covenant inaugurated. Remember that? God said he was going to do that. And the people willingly say, yes, we're going to do everything in the law. And so we're encouraged by that, and we're even more encouraged when we hear after that God saying, I want you to build something very special and very important, this tabernacle. This is super important and super exciting because this is pointing us to this issue of loss of fellowship with God. We're going to now have a way for God to dwell with his people. In fact, we're going to get into this, Lord willing, next summer. If you read the tabernacle, a lot of people are like, okay, you know, this is kind of overly detailed. Do I really need to know all these details about the exact size of this structure and all of this? Well, all those details are in there for a very important reason. Um, they're all pointing us to the tabernacle as a new Garden of Eden place including, it's kind of amazing, but like, you know, there's the angel guarding the way to the, most, to, to the, to the Garden of Eden um, in Genesis 3. Well, there's angels woven into the veil that leads to the most holy place, right? So what's this saying? God is making a way to dwell with his people. And yet, right in the middle of this, like there's sort of two pieces to this. There's the, here's the design, and then there's a detailed um, description of how he then makes it according to the design. Right in the middle of that <laughs> is 32, golden calf, where we see Israel breaking the covenant after just having made it. And yet God shows himself gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he doesn't destroy them, but he shows mercy. And the covenant goes on. Um, the, the building goes on. And in the very last chapter, climax of the, the whole book, this is the real climax, by the way. Real, the real climax is not chapters 14 through 15 and the, the Red Sea thing, as exciting as that is. The real climax is at the end of chapter 40 when the whole thing is finished, the tabernacle is all constructed, and what happens? God's glory comes down and dwells. And what are we seeing? God, once again, dwells with human beings. And yet, Moses can't go in. And that's how the book ends. And so you're like, wait. He made a way for God, <laughs> uh, for God to uh, dwell with his people. 
but wait, they can't go in. And so it's this unresolved issue. How will a sinful Israel ever have fellowship with a holy God? And that makes you, if you get that, makes you want to read Leviticus. But that's another Sunday school. So um, all this is just showing us that there, there is an overarching um, drive to the book of Exodus. Um, there's an overarching narrative flow. And I wanted to ask you after this overview, just as you're reflecting on the big picture that I gave you the book of Exodus, what has been accomplished through this grand narrative? Like how are we in a different or better place at the end of the book um, Verses at the beginning. What are some things that have been accomplished? There's some organization to Israel's worship. Yeah, there's a, there's structure to how God is um, going to dwell with His people. Maybe there's a place that's been established, and then if we read through twenty through twenty three. Um, we read all these specifics about what does it mean to be holy as God is holy, right? So, um, yeah, there's structure to, to Israel's worship and to Israel's life. Mm-hmm. Yes, so God is fighting for his people, and God is showing himself to be a fighter against sin, right? Um, he is not just going to sit, sit back and watch Pharaoh, and Pharaoh represents Satan um, and his opposition to the seed of the woman. He's not just going to sit back and say, well, too bad for them. Um, in fact, as we will see at the end of chapter 2, God's going to hear their groaning, and God's going to know it's time to act. Right? Good. What else has been accomplished as of the end of the book? Yeah. Good, yeah. So God's showing his holiness. There's consequences for sin. Um, certainly that's true with the golden calf and, and the ensuing events there. And, and also all that happens here when there's wilderness uh, struggles there. Where's the water? Where's the food? Um, God is vindicating his holiness and certainly not pampering their sin or um, making, making uh, you know, excuses for them. Yeah, Anna? Good. Yeah, God doing what needs to be done so he can dwell with his people and really showing himself faithful to these ancient promises, right? We don't have all these promises answered by the end of Exodus. Um, They don't have the promised land yet. But as we're about to see, they do have abundant seed and covenant relationship. And God is, he's fulfilling those promises and he's making a way for God, for him to have fellowship with his people. Um, Good. Those are all good. Great um, answers. And, and really, as we think about it, um, this is the great salvation story of the Old Testament. So what is the gospel of the Old Testament? God saved us when we were slaves. He brought us out of Egypt and he brought us into this good land. So if you ask, if you ask an Israelite, um, who, is, who is the Lord? Well, Exodus 20, verse 1. Remember the beginning of the Ten Commandments? 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And now, why do we obey? Because he did that for us, right? And so in the gospel, what has God done? It's a new Exodus story. This is stealing my thunder from the very last class of our time together. But um, this provides the paradigm for the ultimate salvation story, which we will later see in the gospels. Um, In fact, it's kind of mind-blowing stuff. And I'll demonstrate this more later. But the Gospels are written, especially the Gospel of Mark, are written in, in such a way as to evoke the Exodus story at critical junctures and to show that Jesus is the new and better, not just Moses, but new and better expression of who the Lord is, who brings his people out of bondage, not to Egypt, but to sin. Right? So the gospel of Jesus Christ is an Exodus story. And when I say that, let's just get one thing clear at the very beginning since we're studying the book of Exodus. What does the word Exodus mean? Yeah, it means, yeah, departure. Yeah. Um, in fact, the word Exodus appears once in the New Testament. Um, uh, in the gospel of Luke chapter 9. Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration, it says they were discussing with Jesus his exodus, his departure, right? And so lots of like winks and like hints there, um, but basically showing that what, what's, the, what's this story about? It's an exit, a departure out of the realm of darkness and sin. And it's obviously, along with that, an entrance into a new life, a life with the Lord here. So with that all being said, let's now read Exodus chapter 1 and unpack it as best we can in the time that remains. And hopefully the big picture that we just talked about will help us in this. So I'm going to read Exodus 1 here, and then we'll talk about it. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they oppressed, they were, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of, Is- of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. 
Then the, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. All right. So let's focus at the beginning here on just verses 1 through 7. What are some things that seem important there in those first seven verses? What are some things God really wants us to know? Yeah, David? The church is growing, yes. An interesting use of the word church. Why do you use that word? It's God's people. Yeah, good. And as we'll um, hopefully have opportunities to talk about a couple times in this book, um, Israel is really the old covenant church, right? Good. So, yeah, they're growing. Um, and where do you see that here? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's from 70 to really, really big, <laughs> right? Yeah, and let's look at verse 7 for a moment. The people of, of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Why do you think it says it that way? Why is that verse worded the way it is? There are lots of right answers. Okay, so it's recalling fruitful and multiply, right? Which is an echo of what? And it was sort of a trick question because it's actually, it's that, the promise God made to Abraham, but also an echo of Genesis 1, right? Fill the earth and subdue it, multiply, right? Um, and, and then, again, here, Abraham, right? So as it's using this language, fruitful, multiply, um, it's evoking past narrative threads. And, and why is that so important? Like, why should we care that it uses words that were used in those other passages? Like, why is it so important that we see that connection? Yeah, Anna? Definitely. Yeah, so it's seeing that fuller picture, like, the book of Exodus is not just, like, this isolated thing. It's it's connected to all that narrative stuff. And, and what is that connection? Like, if you read Genesis 1-7, and you're remembering, oh, man, Abraham, and, oh, Genesis 1, what's the sort of payoff? What's it saying about God, what God's doing here? Yeah, Phyllis? Yes, he's keeping his promise to Abraham. In other words, we can say, as of Exodus 1-7, check, <laughs> right? God said you would make them abundant, fruitful, and multiply as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Now, it's like abundantly saying it to us. Yeah, God's done it. And um, in fact, uh, Deuteronomy 1, he'll even use that language. 
uh, Moses will say to the people, uh, now I see that you guys have become like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky, explicitly basically <laughs> bringing that out, that there, this is in fact what God said he would do. And notice even, I think this is pretty cool, the author here multiplies words to express the multiplication of the people. Like, it's sort of unnecessarily redundant, right? All he had to say was that they increased greatly. You could have used one of these words, right? But it says they were fruitful, and they increased greatly, and they multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. What are you getting from that? Multiplying words to indicate multiplying people, right? And uh, striking, too, um, the word for increased greatly is actually the word that's used for the, uh, all the creepy crawlies in uh, Genesis 1. Um, the earth teemed with them. So you're just thinking of like this enormous, just massive multiplication. Um, this, is, this is like really um, kind of exceeding kind of huge amounts. Um, and then let's just think too about the number 70. Verse 5, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, but then they become this great multitude. Anytime you see any detail in the Bible, this is an instinct I'm trying to impart to you all. Anytime you see any detail in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, okay, why did he say it? Why did he say it? Because every single detail matters. Now, we may not be able to say why that detail matters, right? So we have to hold, have caution, right? Not just sort of immediately think the first thing that comes to our mind. Um, so, uh, you know, Robert Alter, this, this great uh, biblical scholar, says, you know, there are no free motifs in the Bible. There's no loose threads, in other words, in the Bible. Um, that applies to this little note here about 70 persons. Why, why might it be important that the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons? Right, right. So numbers in the Bible have, um, like, the symbolic significance, right? Um, and seven is a number of completion. And so there's an element there of, like, you know, the whole family going down. Um, the, the number 70, yeah. Exactly, yes. Later on, we'll hear um, in the Gospel of Luke, um, I'm trying to remember, um, just right there in the middle, um, he sends out 70. And that's also building on this. Right? Um, there's, a, there's a new beginning here. And um, this is a bit obscure, but um, if we go back to X, oh, sorry, Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, there's the generation of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It says, sons were born to them after the flood. And you have the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog. And you've got all these names, right? Well, guess what? If you count up all the names in Genesis 10, you get 70. And so 70 becomes a, a number that signifies what? Think about the significance of new beginning, Noah. He has those three boys. They have basically 70 that are coming from them. What's, what's the significance there in Genesis 10 of the 70? Right. 
yeah, it's like a new worldwide population, all the nations, right, emerging from these 70, right? This is the new beginning, right? Um, same thing here. Um, what seems to be going on in our, our passage is that this abundant seed is being portrayed by, you know, the 70 coming from, the, uh, the, the abundant seed coming from the 70, is we're seeing a new humanity, a redeemed humanity uh, filling the earth here. That's just a hint. Um, that's something that becomes clearer later. But uh, the, the number 70 is important. And here's one other piece I wanted to make sure we noticed. Take a look back at Genesis 46, verse 8. Genesis 46, verse 8. This is Jacob going, leaving the land, and there's this little note right as he leaves the land of Egypt. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. That's verse 7. Then verse 8, now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. And we see a very similar list. It's a little fuller, but a similar list to what we have here. So what's interesting is that the first six words of Genesis 46, 8, are the exact same as the first six words of Genesis 1, or Exodus 1, 1. Now, why might that be important? Why might it be important that Exodus 1, 1 is, like, identical to this other verse way back in Genesis 46? Why would, why would he do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's connecting to, you know, the the that narrative, right, about the children of Israel. Um, this is a this is a kind of literary device, right? That um, whenever you want to pick up a loose thread, one of the ways of picking up that loose thread is starting with the same words and then continuing on, right? So we heard about how Israel Jacob went down into Egypt, seventy in number. Now this is saying, now I want to pick up that thread. Right? I want to tell you about what's going to happen next. Okay, so we have a beginning that's an auspicious beginning, right? It's a, it's a suggested beginning. It's continuing the story from Genesis. It's picking up on the promises that God made to Abraham. It's saying suggestive things about them being like a new humanity, fulfilling God's purposes Back in Gen- Genesis chapter one, it's there's this you know sense of like um, you know Aslan's on the move, right? Big things are rumbling, and then immediately, immediately, we have opposition. Verse eight. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now why would that qualifier be important? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so it, exactly. It's a shift. Um, previously, at the end of Genesis, what, where was Joseph at? He was the second in command of all Egypt, right? Pharaoh gave him everything, rule over everything, right? And Joseph also was the deliverer of not just Egypt, but the whole known world during this massive famine that lasted seven years, right? So if it hadn't been for Joseph, 
um, all Egypt would have been destroyed. Um, Pharaoh and all their house would have, you know, basically lost everything. What happened? Joseph, by the inspiration of God, by the help of God, was able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, give good counsel, preserve the world. And yet, how quickly we forget, right? There comes this new king who does not know Joseph, right? And so, um, what, what does he say here? Let's look again at verses 9 and 10. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So what's his basic idea? What's his, what's his thought? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah he's, he's really viewing them as a threat. He's afraid they're going to ally with their enemies. Right. And, and uh, yeah, like you said, rather than kind of being nice and encouraging them to like be loyal, um, instead, they start saying we need to oppress them. Now, with those words ringing in your ear, verses nine and ten, I'd like to read another verse from Genesis. Genesis 11, verse four. This is at the Tower of Babel. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Do you see any parallels? Look at, look at Exodus 1, 9 through 10, and then flip back. Look at Genesis eleven four. Yeah, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so there's um there's plot similarities in the sense that like um you know there's the multiplying there's the, the scattering of the nations after this and the multiplying of the nations after Babel. Um and so uh we see the multiplying here, um the, the people of Israel multiplying. Um and uh yeah look look a little I'm sorry, maybe I'm being a little obscure here, but look at this. Verse 10 of Exodus 1. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. Genesis 11. Come, let us build ourselves a city, lest we be dispersed. So the sentence structure is identical, right? And there's also a similarity in terms of what's What's kind of uh, what's it, what's it saying about um, 
What are both of those sentences saying about the relationship between the speaker and God? Yeah, there's this like self-reliance, right? Come, let us. We're going to outsmart these guys. Good. Yeah, so there's this reliance on um, their own wisdom. And um, it's really interesting that, you know, the Egyptian kings really um, boasted in their wisdom. They, they really uh, thought of themselves as extremely um, learned people, right? So we're going to deal shrewdly. We're going to outsmart these guys. Um, that's a key issue. Did I see your hand there, Anna? Yes. Yeah. So in both cases, you've got people mounting against God. So what was God's command? Fill the earth and subdue it. What, is, what do they say in Babel? Come, let's all gather to one place so we won't be scattered, right? What's, what's God's purpose here? I'm going to establish my people. I'm going to cause them to grow and, and be numerous. What's, what's Pharaoh saying? Come, let's make them small, right? Yeah. Good. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second, because that's a really ironic and funny part of this. Right. So there's this whole thing where what's their idea? Put the babies to death. Right. And so he says um, to these two midwives, this is what you're supposed to do. If it's a male, put him to death. And they don't do it. Right. And um, and yeah, then they lie to Pharaoh. And how do we know that it's a lie? The lie is, oh, they're so uh, vigorous. Say again. Okay, yeah, but look at the text. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, verse 17. Um, like, if we didn't have verse 17, we'd be wondering if this actually was what was happening, right? Oh, they're so vigorous. They get birth before we get there, right? But, but verse 17 clearly states that they let the male children live. So they were there, and they knew, right? And then they give this lie, and you don't, you don't even get the sense that, like, Pharaoh's like, wait a second. <laughs> it's just like, oh, okay. Um, well, now I'm going to have to ask all my people to, <laughs> to start waging war. And let's just think for a second um, about that. So um, there's other contrasts too, by the way. Have you noticed God names the two midwives, Shifra and Pua? Do we know the name of this king of Egypt? Studiously not told to us, right? And so um, there's an irony there, right? Um, just like Babel, that's let us make a name for ourselves. A name is part of how you, pres you know, preserve your honor and your, um, you know, your greatness. This Pharaoh, then we're not even told his name, right? Um, he's rendered nameless by his folly, whereas these women are dignified with the name, and it says they also um, are given families. Um, what, what are we to make 
of their deception. Was their deception good? Did they do the right thing? Yeah. Yeah, it'd be, it would be hard put to say um, that they were doing wrong if God were then to see what they were doing and bless them, right? So um, just because somebody does it in the Bible doesn't make it right. We need to be really clear about that, right? There's, we can get really off track. <laughs> we say, well, look, so-and-so did this in the Bible. Well, yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff in the Bible, right? But the fact that, that there's a um, divine intervention to bless these women and honor their what they're doing. Um, now, that causes us to pause, though, right? Because um, isn't lying wrong? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, yeah. It was an unlawful command that, that Pharaoh gave, kill these boys. Okay, so we're being commanded to murder. Obviously, we must obey God rather than men, right? Um, and then, yeah, you, you're giving like, you know, this is kind of like the classic um, ethical question, right? If the, the Nazis come to your door and they say, are you hiding Jews? And you are hiding Jews. Um, do you do you lie, right? And 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 you're saying you must lie <laughs> in the sense that like you have to you you have to preserve life, right? Um, you need to you need to not um, uh, need to not give a- ammunition to the adversary. There, were you going to say something? Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, yeah, they they um they didn't just say I'm not going to do that of Pharaoh. They they actually lied so that they could keep on being life-giving um midwives. Um and I don't want to get too sidetracked on this, but it is fascinating um when we look at the ninth command, you shall not bear false witness. That what is that talking about? It's it's not a prohibition on all deceit, all lying. Um, in fact, I had a, a friend at Wheaton who did his dissertation on deception in First and Second Samuel, and one of the things he discovered was when deception was in a self-interested um, mode, um, those characters were always portrayed badly. Um, they were never vindicated, never honored. Um, when it was self-interested lying, but when it was deception for the sake of um, preserving life uh, or for the sake of keeping God's commands, um, those people were honored, just like Shifra and Pua are here. Um, and so, you know, deception is obviously Satan is the father of lies. God is the unlying God. And that should be our disposition is always to be truthful, even when it hurts. You know, um, Psalm 15 um, 
he swears to his own hurt and does not change, right? We're always, always going to be people of integrity, but there are situations, especially in this the context of war, where, for example, camouflage is a form of deceit, right? Um, where we, we, are, we are actually waging war effectively um, against the evil one by using his own weapons against him. So lots to think about there, but... Uh, I wanted to make sure I at least touched about that, and I want to I want to focus now on the last last minutes that we have, on this idea of the war against Satan. Okay, is this the first and only time where death? Of Yeah, great connection. Yeah, that's right. So uh, where else do we see infants being destroyed? The birth of Jesus um, in the time of Herod, right? And both of those are connected to what I, I thank you for bringing that up, because both of those are, are, are connected to the, this, the, the thing I want us to see. How is this story in Exodus 1 connected to this, the war between the seeds? How does this an expression or connected to the war between the seeds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Good. So so there's this this uh, promise of God that he's going to be multiplying the seed of the true, his true people, the, the children of Abraham. Abraham is identified as the seed of the woman, and from them, from him, Isaac is the seed of the woman. Um, Jacob is the seed of the woman, right? Um, and so God is saying, I, I am, I'm wanting to make my offsp- the, the offspring of my people abundant, and Pharaoh's obviously against that. Keep going. How do we see the war between the seeds being? Well, no, just how is Exodus 1 furthering the story of Genesis 3.15? I will put enmity between your seed, seed of the serpent, and her seed. See? That's the, that's the plot um, that's being, I think, developed in a big way here. Good. Yes. Yeah, remember um, Revelation 12, the dragon trying to swallow the baby right when it's born, right? Satan has always been seeking to destroy the line of the woman because he knows from the woman's line will come his destroyer, right? And so what do we see? This is part of what I'm trying to, to bring out here. Pharaoh is the seed of the serpent. He is opposed to the seed of the woman. So whereas God is in the midst of multiplying the offspring of Abraham in fulfillment of his promises, what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to destroy the seed of the woman. The same thing, like Paul was bringing out, the same thing God was trying, uh, same thing that, uh, sorry, Satan was trying to do through his seed Herod, who is trying to destroy all the baby boys there. 
right? So this is just a, a, a regular dynamic of the story, but it's particularly poignant, poignant here where what does he say first? Okay, I want, I want um, all the, the midwives to destroy the babies. Then he's commit, by the end of the passage, he's commanding all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. So now it's a command for all of Pharaoh's nation to try to destroy the babies. Now, isn't it extraordinary that the climax of this section will be the firstborn of Egypt dying, right? I'm trying to get you to see that, like, there's a, there's a, um, a theme running here. Um, who, who ends up dying? It's the baby boys of Egypt. Um, the seed of the serpent actually is being crushed, not the seed of the woman. And that's what I want us to zero in on this very last part. Look at this. This is incredible. Think about this. The more, verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. What is that showing us? And this is kind of like, I think, one of the big payoffs of this story. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to pick up on what you're saying, uh, Richard Wormbrandt in his book, Tortured for Christ, uh, a Romanian pastor and in, in, under communism, he, he said, this is the prayer request of the persecuted church. Do not pray that the persecution would end. Pray rather that we would be faithful under the persecution, right? And there's a profound understanding there that of this verse. The more they are oppressed, the more they multiply, right? And if we look at the, the book of Acts, this is amazingly shown forth over and over again. There's all these abounding words um, in the book of Acts. Um, so God added to that day 3,000 more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. Many people, great many people were added to the Lord. There's this abounding theme in the book of Acts, abundant seed, by the way. It's the same kind of thing as what God's doing here, except now it's in the, the church. And yet it's always, or very often, it's connected to persecution. So here's one, um, Acts chapter 6. This, this is great. Oh, sorry, Acts chapter 8. Stephen is put to death in chapter 7. It says, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. That's Acts 8, one, Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Get it? The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So as we're thinking about this, how are some ways this passage um, encourages us just in closing? What are some things this is showing us about the ways of our God? How does it encourage us, we who are in Christ? Yes, the seed of the woman has come. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. Yeah, now we're living in the time not just of the shadowy picture of the victory. We're living in the time when Jesus is actually triumphed. And he's triumphed much in the way that Shifra and Pua triumph. These seemingly weak means, these midwives, are defeating the great Pharaoh through, um, through their faithfulness. Jesus, by dying, defeats the seed of the serpent. And indeed, the more that the church is persecuted, the more that we are conformed to the likeness of Jesus in our sufferings, we should expect that the more we will multiply. Right? So rather than seeing uh, persecution as something to be afraid of, I hope this passage encourages you to see it as just an expression of this age-old opposition of the war between the seeds. And it's a war that simply Satan cannot win and that we cannot lose. Um, the more that we are persecuted, the more we will grow. Satan cannot crush and snuff out the people of God. He didn't, wasn't able to do it back in Egypt, and now after the coming of Jesus, he certainly won't be able to do it in this age. So why don't we pray and ask God to help us to, to trust him for this. Lord, we thank you that um, long ago you promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And yet that seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head while itself, while himself being wounded. And Lord, we are thankful that even um, as we think about Jesus and him being wounded for our sake, um, that that led to abundant life. And even now, our being wounded, our being persecuted, um, the church being uh, mistreated unjustly, and the world trying to snuff us out is simply the way in which you are pleased to cause your church to grow. And so we do pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world. We pray that you would help them to remain faithful in their trials and that, Lord, as people see their sufferings, that they would find um, uh, and be pricked um, to seek your glory and to seek to know you, the God who's worth suffering for. Help us to be faithful, Lord, in whatever trials you have for us. And we pray that, Lord, you would win the great victory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, everybody.